Hey, this is Jim, pastor of Decided Church, and this is our podcast. Thanks for listening. We hope the sermon you're about to hear just blesses your heart and really encourages you. If you don't mind, subscribe. That way you'll get instant notifications every time a sermon is uploaded. And by all means, if you're feeling led to give, click on the giving link and there'll be more directions to follow. God bless. Enjoy the message. Good morning, Decided Church. You're welcome to take a seat. It is an honor and privilege to have you today. For those of you who do not know who I am, my name is Will. I am one of the pastors here in it. Like I said, we love, love, love that you're here. You could be anywhere right now enjoying this beautiful weather, uh, but we're grateful uh, that you would join us in worship. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be continuing in our current sermon series entitled Stand Firm. Uh, We have been going through the armament of God in the last chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn there. Uh, but before we get there, I wanted to start off with a question. Is anybody else here like really sad we didn't get any snow? Like, I, I, th- I try to think last time it snowed here. I think, I think the last time it snowed here was like 2013, and it was like 18 inches of snow. Isn't that right? 2013. It was before I was married, dog. That's a long time ago. But anyway, it's amazing. You know, actually, what's crazy is, is on Tuesday, uh, there was 47 out of 50 states that had snow, and South Carolina was not one of them, um, of course. But then again, it ended up snowing in the north, uh, north upstate, so it, it counted. Also, Florida got some snow and Georgia, so really 49 out of 50. Uh, the only one being Hawaii. They've got it real hard over there. <laughs> Must be nice to be on island time. Um, but literally, it's been, it was the most of all time. It's the first time since they started keeping track that that many states had gotten snow. Uh, they think that the closest was back in 1977, which was like 38 states, but they didn't really keep close track. Um, by the way, in 1977, South Carolina did not get snow, of course. So, <laughs> hey, listen, seriously, I, I, I'm sad we didn't get snow, but I also know uh, that a lot of the storm, the, the ice storm specifically, has done a lot of damage uh, to a lot of people, especially in the South, Texas, Uh, Louisiana, Mississippi. So while I'm sad about not getting any snow, I know that this isn't really a fun moment for everyone. I mean, the average snowfall was eight inches, and that's average. Some places got two feet. So, um, and of course, states like Texas are not going to be ready for that. So a lot of them are without power. I think over five million people nationwide. So that's one out of every 66 people in America. That's a lot. I know 66 sounds, I mean, we probably have, that'd be like two of us without power nationwide. I mean, that's a lot of people. So um, I've been praying for the church down there that they could just be the hands and feet of Jesus. They could love on that community as I know that they're probably hurting. It's so sad to see the lines of people waiting for clean water. I mean, I just, I take for granted sometimes the thing that I'm blessed with. So um, it's, it's a big deal. And while that's a big deal, and I'm not playing it lightly, I actually started thinking about this. What if, because I've been watching the power outage map just to kind of see this week uh, out how many people in each state were out of power. And then I thought about this. What if we could see a power outage map of the church? Like, think about the amount of Christians who don't live with the power of the Holy Spirit who don't live with 
the armament of God on them at all times. Though we have complete access, we have, a, we have an electrical line, a current, if you will, that is never void of energy, and yet we refuse to flip the switch. No pun intended. Think about it. Think about if we saw a power outage map of the church. I think what is happening in the South is drastic and sad, and I think we should pray for them. As a matter of fact, we will in our time together after we read the scripture, but I'm more worried about the power outage map of the church. By the way, that's the name of the sermon today, power outage, if you like to take notes and like a title. And I hope and pray, our hope and prayer within this sermon series is that you could tap into that. You could tap into the power of God through the Holy Spirit by putting on each piece of this armament and marching forth in the boldness of Jesus Christ. Now, before we continue on, I want us to read the scriptures together. And because this is the only time that I get to preach out of these passages, I am going to preach a little bit out of the text we're not going to cover. So if you want to stand with me, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17a. Now, my text is supposed to be just 16 and 17a. Jim knows what he's doing, but I just decided, hey, while I'm here, I might as well talk about some others. So we're going to read the whole thing in its entirety. Context is king when it comes to scripture. And this is what it says, the word of God in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And for our, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and that after you have done everything to stand, stand firm. Then you guys see a little theme here. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, we'll be covering that today, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for every piece of the armor of God that you've given us so far, God, and I just pray First and foremost, for those struggling in the South, the over a hundred million, that's one out of three, over a hundred million Americans affected by this winter storm. And so God, we just pray for everyone who's hurting, for everyone who uh, is without. And we just ask God that through your church, you could begin to heal communities, that you could use this as a means by which you get them into your church and that they would see the God, that it would be presented clearly, the gospel would be presented clearly and that they would receive you by faith. And we're grateful that when we do that, we are given this great armor. We just ask that you help us wear it today. We don't want to be a part of the power outage Christians. There are so many of them, too many if you ask me. And so God, I pray that you would help us connect to the current of Christ and live in the power you've given us through your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. That'll be the last time you stand unless you spontaneously by the Spirit raise up and say amen or something. <laughs> I doubt there will be any of that today. But um, So before we get into verse 16 and 17a, I want to talk a little bit about verse 12. So if you want to put verse 12 up on 
um, the screen, we're going to talk a little bit about powers and principalities. Because just as the Holy Spirit has given us power, so there is power in this world that is working against us. And this is what it says in verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now in this passage, uh, they do a, the, the New International Version does a little bit of interpretation for you. So the, the Greek word there, the word that is used there is kind of covered up. But if you can read it this way, it says this also. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, the reason it's power, uh, the reason it's, um, we have to use those specific phrases of powers and principalities because this would have been a common illustration for the, uh, the audience of the Ephesian church. Uh, to define these a little bit, the power would have been someone who holds authority over a whole kingdom, like the Roman Empire, like Caesar. And then underneath Caesar would be these principalities, if you will. And this was known as a state ruled by a prince or a governor or a satrap and was usually a relatively small state or a state that falls within a large state or a nation such as the Roman Empire. So basically, it's kind of like this. The power at the time would have been Caesar over the empire of Rome, but the principality, at least in Jerusalem, was Pontius Pilate. And so when he's using these words of powers and principalities, he's painting a picture for the Ephesian church that would have made sense to them. So I don't know if you know this, but powers and principalities are actually still at work in the, in the world today. We don't see them as empires. We don't see them as principalities or smaller states. We don't look at the state of South Carolina as a principality. But in the spiritual realm, powers and principalities still exist. And so before we continue into our scriptures today, I wanted to take time to define a few of those in our culture. Is that okay with you? I'm glad you guys are following. Um, so principalities are specific demonic authorities over certain areas of the world. Uh, let me give you an example. Depression and suicide is a principality that's very strong in certain places in America, specifically the West and the Northwest. If you know anything about suicide rates there, they're way higher than the rest of the nation. Um, then you also have the poverty of, excuse me, the principality of poverty. This one ne doesn't necessarily have a realm or an area specifically. This actually, the principality of poverty actually hits a specific ethnic group more than it does a specific place. Now, there are places that, are, that have the principality of poverty, places like Haiti, that place over it has a principality of poverty. It's also all over the third world. They're all over the place. But in America, it's usually ethnic divide, racial divide, unfortunately. But it does exist. And then, of course, the one that is most applicable to us because we live in the Bible Belt and it's prevalent is the principality of religion. Religion is deadly. Christianity is not about Religion. Religion says do, do, do in order to get something. But Jesus or Christianity says, you've done nothing, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, based on another, because you believed in faith. So 
I don't have time to unpack those. Those are just three examples of principalities. Now, I'm going to give you two examples of powers in the world. Are you, are you ready? Everybody got them on the notes? Okay. Now, listen. I'm going to touch two very, very sensitive topics, and I want to make sure I'm very clear. This is not political at all. What I'm about to say is fact. So, do not read between the lines. Do not misquote me. Do not misinterpret me. But I'm going to give you two things. First off, the occult. The occult is a power in America. Things like Mormonism, the Watchtower, Christian science. Those are huge. But let me tell you one occult that's growing at a rapid rate. And that's witchcraft. Witchcraft is not something we deal with in America or we don't think that we deal with. But it's very prevalent in Africa, in other Western countries, and it's seeping its way into America. As a matter of fact, back in 1990, there was only about 8,000 people who would identify as witches. In 2020, it has now grown to 1.5 million people. So witchcraft is on the rise. Now, let me tell you something. There is one organization that is interlaced with witchcraft. And you have to know about it. And it's by the name of BLM. That's right. This church believes in the sentiment of Black Lives Matter. Absolutely. No lives matter if black lives don't matter. But the organization itself is literally ran by witches. And you can look this up. They are a part of a witchcraft called the Yoruba Religion of Ifa. And what they do is they summon the spirits of the dead and they use the power of those spirits in order to give them the ability to do their social justice work. And you can listen to interviews with the people who lead BLM saying that they have talked to the spirits of people they've never met in person. Um, so just saying BLM is ran by witches and you can get mad at me for saying that, but I'm here to tell you. They literally work off of a diagram that's the 16 points of de demonic possession. And do you find it ironic that they have 16 offices in, in America? Just saying. Now, I don't have time to unpack that, but that is one occult that is this just... And by the way, they even say, like, this is not about social justice. This is a spiritual movement. That's what they say. You can literally watch. They don't. They are very open. Even the Atlantic Sun talked to, called them the witches of Baltimore. This is mainstream media covering it. Okay, now I'm going to continue. This one's actually even harder. You thought that was hard? You thought that was hard? <laughs> well, this one's even worse. New Age. New Age. Gnosticism. Eastern spirituality, Hinduism, and Buddhism, New Thought, which, by the way, New Thought people, they actually claim to be Christian but deny a lot of the essentials. But here, let me tell you one thing about that has New Age roots that is rampant in the church. It starts with an E and ends with Enneagram. The Enneagram is out straight out of the new age. Let me tell you how the Enneagram, hey, let me tell you how the Enneagram came about, okay? A gentleman by the name of Claudio Naranjo came into contact with a familiar spirit and he partook in a ritual called automatic writing, 
where the spirit overtook him and he wrote, he did not know what he was writing. His eyes were closed. And when he opened and he looked what he read, it was the Enneagram, all nine types. If that doesn't throw a red flag, let me tell you a little bit more. Um, by the way, that's how Mary Eddie Baker from Christian Science got all of hers, her doctrines, by the way, too. Um, but let me tell you a, a few other things. Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr is the Christian who brought the Enneagram into the church. He wrote a book called The Enneagram, The Christian Perspective, back in 2001. And as it was the main catalyst for allowing the Enneagram in the church, Rohr had a lot of theological inconsistencies. First of all, he was a panentheist. That's different than a pantheist. A pantheist believes that everything culminated together is God. Panentheism means that God is in everything, which is not scripturally sound. He thinks that God is God interpenetrates all of creation. He also is a perennialist. A perennialist is uh, the idea that at their heart, all religions are exactly the same despite their apparent differences. That's definitely anti-Bible. He also teaches that Christ was first incarnated at creation, not when he came as a baby. And if that doesn't alarm you, let me give you one more. He actually makes a distinguish, dis, uh, distinction between the historical Jesus and the universal Christ, who he asserts is way more than Jesus ever was. So that's, that's where we're getting our information. That's the Enneagram that we're following. The root, the origin of it. And it's all over the church. Saddleback Church just had a guy come in and talk about it. It's all about finding out who you are so that you can better love people. But what the scripture says is, if you want to find out who you are, turn to the word of God. And, and we have to look at those things. We have to be, in 2021, the Lord has really been pushing on me discernment. Just, it's been that, if you guys have a word, you know, everybody gets a word. If there's a word for me in 2021, it's discernment. And I, I listened to Beth and Jeff McCord, two Christians who use the Enneagram in a Christian perspective. And I just felt something in my heart wasn't right. So I started doing research. And this is what I found out. Now, I'm not here to condemn anyone. I'm not here to tell you what you're doing is a sin. I, there's people who, have, who, who can somehow justify it, and that's fine by me. But all I'm saying is don't let the occult in. Don't let it in. It's already in. Push it out. How about that? Push the cold out. Okay, that's all I have for you on the powers and principalities. Everybody still with me? <laughs> Woo, I think I lost some people. But uh, definitely some people online. All right. <laughs> okay, let's continue on to what we're actually supposed to be preaching about. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 16 through 17a. In addition to all this, so Paul just got done talking about the gospel shoes of peace, the belt of truth, and the breastplate of righteousness. And he says, in addition to all of this, or if you want to quote it a different way, above all, most importantly, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. What's really cool about this word, translated shield actually can sometimes signify a door because the shields were sometimes large enough to be one. They covered the soldier in his entirety. And 
As a matter of fact, they were so big, whenever the battle was over, the way that they took the corpses off the battlefield was by putting them on their shield and using it as a cot. So th that's kind of how big a shield was. It was about two and a half to four feet long. And what's really cool about these shields is that the edges of the shields were constructed in a way to where they could interlock and march into the enemy like a solid wall. Now, what's so cool about this is sometimes we think shield, we think defense, we think protecting ourselves. But what we see in this scripture and the way Paul uses the shield of faith in the context that we find the, the shield in, it's actually our main tool for advancement. Not the sword of the spirit. Well, sword of spirit has a huge part to play and it is a part of the advancement, but it, the shield of faith is kind of offensive in itself, but it's also defensive. It's definitely defensive, but it's, it's the main tool for our advancement. And what was cool about it is on the front, it was covered with a thick leather, about two to three inches thick. And before the battles, they would dip it into water because they knew that there would be flaming arrows. Now, before I get to the flaming arrows, I want to talk about faith a little bit. Because I think sometimes faith can be a bit cerebral or, or a bit ambiguous. And I just want to clarify some things. If I can define practically the word faith, I would define it practically as this. Faith is acting on the truth of God. Faith is acting on the truth of God. See, what I think it is, is this. Faith is something you do more than it is something that you have. Some of us have been given the gift of faith by the Holy Spirit. And for us, having faith is a little easier. But for the large majority of us, faith is more what you do than it is what you have. Some of y'all got to fight for faith. I'm a guy who has been given the gift of faith, and I don't have to fight for it much. And I applaud all of you who fight for your faith, because that's way harder. Um, but, but faith is something you do more than it is something. You, don't you just hate it when people are like, you just got to have more faith. You just got to have more faith. No, it's not about having faith. It's about doing. Faith is about doing. And what's so funny is, is I think some of us lack faith because we aren't convinced of the truth. You remember when Jim preached about the belt of truth and he said it's the central part of the armor. It's the thing which girds up everything. And he talked about how it interlocked with the breastplate of righteousness and it would have interlocked with the gospel piece of what well, you usually their boots, but you could say gospel, the gospel shoes of peace. They all interlocked to the belt. And as a matter of fact, that's the thing which you would bring up your cloak so that you could run into battle. So how does the shield of faith, though it's, though it's not necessarily attached to it, it is. Because a lot of us don't have faith because we're not convinced of the truth. Because you can't have faith without truth. Because faith is acting on the truth. If you don't have the truth, there's no acting to do. Does that make sense? And here's the thing. Faith is all about follow through and not about feelings or the lack thereof. Faith is all about follow through and not about feelings or the lack thereof. I don't want to get any, into any more of that because we have a family membership class tonight where we'll have like a record 20 plus people and we talk about faith because it's one of our core values. To faith it till you make it. So I don't want to steal any of our thunder because it's going to be dope. But anyway, <laughs> faith is about follow through. It's not about feelings. Now, let's talk about the flaming arrows. 
Think about it. We've all watched the movies, right, where they take the arrow and they dip it in pitch and they light it on fire and they shoot it at the enemy. The thing about a flaming arrow is that it's not necessarily meant to hit people, right? But it's meant to hit those things that we hide behind. See, the flaming arrows of the enemy expose us. They make us vulnerable. And this is exactly what happens when we live a lifestyle that's inconsistent with faith. We become exposed by the enemy. Let me give you a great life example. Does anybody know the name Ravi Zacharias? If anybody hasn't heard the news, Ravi Zacharias. And by the way, I listen to him twice a week for like three years of my life. So hearing this news, it, I, I, was, I mourned. I, I, I was grieving from what I heard. But he was one of the greatest Christian apologists. Now, of course, per, people's faults do not extinguish the truth of God. God still used him somehow, some way. But news came out that he had sexually abused, spiritually abused, raped women, sexted them, over 200 200 people, he's been exposed. He died in May 2020. So this all came out after his death. Nobody knew. There were allegations before back in 2016, 2017, I don't have time to go into, which should have been red flags, but they weren't. And what happens is, is he's been exposed. And then, and here's the thing, this guy was so, I, the, the deepness of this man's deception, it sickens me. He would sexually abuse someone, and then he would say, if you tell on me, you are responsible for the thousands, hundreds of thousands of souls that I've led to the Lord. That's what he would do. He would, he would pray with them before doing it. I mean, it's disgusting. I just want to burn all of his books that I have. But he was a man who didn't pick up his shield of faith. He began to live an inconsistent lifestyle. And now it doesn't hurt him because he's gone. And I'm not here to question his salvation, but I do know who is hurting. And that's the church. That's so many people who through the ministry of RZIM now have so many doubts and so many questions. They've all been exposed because of one man who lived an inconsistent life of faith. He was the one shield that was out of the wall. And now many are paying the dividends, the negative consequences of his lack of, def of, everyone would have thought he'd been the greatest defender. He defended the faith. That's what he did. Yet he was, he was the weak spot. He was the hole in the wall. Gosh. Anyway, I'm done talking about him. I still got some bitterness to work through. Yeah, obviously, y'all see that. <laughs> Hey, what's really cool about the shield is that it does more than just protect the Christian, but also it protects something else. This is a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He always says it way better than I do, so I figure I'd just quote him. After recounting various pieces, he says, above all, the man of God is to put on the girdle, which is the belt of truth, and the breastplate, and he is to be shod, and he is to wear his helmet. But though these are all armor, Yet faith is an armor for his armor. It is not only a defense for him, but a defense for his defenses. 
Thus, faith not only shields the man, but shields his graces too. How often do we see the enemy come in and attack a Christian on those specific topics? Think about this. Satan always come in, comes in and attacks the belt of truth. We live in a, we literally live in a postmodern, post-truth world. The way that we define what truth is, is so much different than it's ever been. No matter how much of the evidence I have on my end or how much of contradiction is on their end, you literally can't win an argument because we haven't put up the shield of faith and so the belt of truth has been attacked by the enemy. Now think about the breastplate of righteousness, right? If we no longer believe that our righteousness that we have is not of our own, right? The imputation of alien righteousness, righteousness that was not mine is now mine, not based upon my works, but just by grace. If the enemy can come in and take that away and attack it, what happens is we get trapped in this performance trap and we begin to perform for God. We begin to try to earn his favor. We try to begin to earn his good graces. And that's toxic. That's the spirit of religion. That's the principality of religion. Then we have the gospel shoes of peace. How often do we become apathetic to those who don't know the gospel due to some disagreement or the way that they treat you? Well, I don't have to argue with you that the, the enemy takes our peace, takes it all the time. Or how about when we're too fearful to share the gospel at all? The shield of faith protects all those pieces. And then, of course, it also protects the helmet of salvation, which is my lead way into verse 17. For a lot of us, the helmet of salvation is where the enemy starts. If he can begin to doubt us, or begin to, uh, if he can get us to doubt our standing with God, he can win. Because guess what? A foothold in our intellect is a foothold in our identity. And if there's anything the gospel has come to do, it's to shape and inform our identity brand new. There's nothing, there's nothing that the world, you cannot be defined by the world. You cannot be defined by the things around you. You are supposed to be defined strictly from the word of God. And so when the, when the enemy has a foothold in our intellect, he begins to have a foothold in our identity. So that's usually the first place people, the enemy goes. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about the hel helmet of salvation. Um, if you want to put it another way, I think a better, honestly, I think a better um, interpretation is take up the helmet of deliverance. Um, we stick to the traditional um, interpretations a lot of the time, but I think a more interpretive word is deliverance because it's, it's more accurate of what he's meaning here in the text. Because when Scripture speaks of salvation, it means more than what we define it as the Christian church. I, I, I think uh, we see salvation as a one-time moment when we first believe in Christ. And sure, that is a part of salvation, but that really is justification. I have been made right in the sight of God. I have been deemed innocent, not guilty. Um, but when we see it through the lens of Scripture, Scripture uses it as the summation of the whole process. So justification, sanctification, glorification, all of it is salvation. All of it is, is us being delivered. And so when he talks about take up the helmet of salvation, he's talking about taking up the helmet of deliverance, allowing our hearts and our minds to be delivered from the evil one, not later on in life, not in a one-time moment, but as a progressive process throughout our lives. 
He's speaking indirectly about the deliverance of our minds because as the body is, as the brain is to the body, so the mind is to the heart. As the brain is to the body, so the mind is to the heart. While they can seem like the same thing, there is a slight difference. And by the way, they are so divinely knit together that the same word in the Hebrew and Greek can be translated both. So there is a divine connection. I do believe they go together in some way, but they're also different. Y'all know that saying, same, same, but different? Same, same, but different. The mind and the heart, they same, same, but different. And so I want to show that a little bit to you, the heart and the mind. And we can see this in Scripture. If we want to go to Matthew 22, verse 37, it says this. This is Jesus speaking. And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your mind. If heart and mind were the same thing, I don't think he would have used both of those. And I think a lot of us are good at loving the God with all of our heart, but I think we're not as good as loving him with all of our mind. And like I said earlier, I think we might be living in the most anti-intellectual time in the history of the Christian church. And the problem of victory and defeat is literally determined by our proper programming. The problem of victory and defeat is determined by proper programming. What we think determines a lot about who we are. And the issue is, is that we're bombarded all the time from the world to think improperly. It, for you nerds, it messes with our code, dog. <laughs> and what happens is, is when it messes with our code, it doesn't allow for us to function properly. Error 404, you know what I'm saying? Um, <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I just, page yeah, page not found. <laughs> Thanks, nerd. Um, <laughs> hey, can I be honest though? Listen, I, I think we're a little, I think the church in general is a little afraid of theology, um, a little afraid of doctrine because it has been abused for a long time. But I think it's because it's fallen on incorrect hearts. Let me say this. The things we entertain with our mind by nature sink into our heart. So when we entertain thoughts of God and we steep ourselves in theology, two things can happen. When we steep a ungenerated, hardened heart of stone in theology, what we get is theological snobbery, if you will. A Bible bully. We know all these people I do not need to point at. We all know who they are. The legalistic who point at you and say you got to do a certain thing or look at a certain way or keep a, a list of things. We don't. And then those who are just, you know, what do you think about Arminianism and Calvinism and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, don't even come at me. I will fight you. Okay. God, had, Christ has given me freedom to do that. Anyway, so, hey, but here's the thing. When, when, when a regenerate, softened heart of flesh is steeped in theology, that's where true heart change happens. We shouldn't be afraid of it. We should welcome it. We should just ask God through the power of his Holy Spirit to make sure that our heart is right to receive it. Doctrine is not the issue. The heart is the issue. And the heart is the issue because the mind is the issue. And here's the cool thing about it is at first, our heart doesn't control our mind. But once our mind is renewed day by day and our heart becomes filled with the things of God, it begins to take over our being. 
At first, our heart is dependent on our mind, but slowly our minds become dependent on our heart. And so when we see things that appeal to the flesh, whether it be a beautiful girl or whether it be whatever you struggle with, when it comes into your mind, you automatically take that thought and you make it captive to Christ because it's, it's, your heart is the wellspring of life. And I think a lot of us give up. A lot of us give up before we get to the point where our heart takes over, where where loving Christ and following his word becomes our one true desire. That is the way that scripture is supposed to work. And the reason it doesn't happen is because we wrongly define what salvation is. We think of just a one-time moment, but it's not. It's deliverance of our minds. Romans 12, 1, right? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but by the renewing of your mind, be transformed. That's what we're supposed to be doing. There is a divine connection between the mind and the heart. And while the breastplate of righteousness protects it, it doesn't make any difference if we don't have our helmet on. And I want to show you a little bit through Scripture how the heart and the mind are connected. Let's look at Romans 10, verse 17. And consequently, faith, which changes our heart of stone into a heart of flesh, comes from hearing, that's intellect. And the message that is heard is through the word of Christ. Let me continue on to Philippians 4, verses 5 through 7. Everyone knows this verse, but let me show you the interconnections here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Check this out. Check this out. This, this passage is, is all about our relationship with God. It says, we must rejoice in emotion of the heart because God is near an intellectual fact. We must be reasonable. That's in our mind. We must not be anxious. That's in our heart. We must pray about specific things in specific ways, which will require the mind. And when we do this, a peace that surpasses understanding will rest on us, which is a feeling in the heart. It's a feeling in the heart. I want to end by saying this. All of us, if you're a Christian here today, if you're in this room, you're in a battle. And the thing about a battle is that it's a waiting game. It's, it's chess. It's not checkers. And the thing about a battle is that there's specific strategic moves. And the only way for us to win this battle is by following each step. And each step provides a crucial thing. We defend. We attack. We advance. We defend. We attack. We advance. An effective defense is the avenue to an efficient attack, which we'll be talking about next week, the offensive parts of the armor of God. And the effective, excuse me, the efficient attack is the avenue for an imminent advance. See, the armament we've talked about so far, we, we, the things that we've covered have been all about defense, Right? Tampa Bay Buccaneers, all about defense. Had to say it. Hey, listen, but defense, 
defense is so crucial. And here, I just want to tell somebody here in this room today, I don't know where you're at, but some of you here today are in a season of waiting. Some of you are hidden behind your shield. Some of you are under attack. Some of you don't know when your moment is going to happen. But I want to tell someone here in this room today that there's going to be an opening. God is going to create an opening for you. Stay behind that shield as long as you have to. The battle is a waiting game, but when the time comes to attack by the word of God and through prayer, which we'll cover next week, it's you will have a moment to take down the enemy. Defend, attack, advance. Defend, attack, advance. There's people in this room here today who feel like all your life you've been defending, but I want to give you encouragement. I want you to take courage because guess what? Sooner or later, there's going to be a season of attack. There's going to be a season of attack, but, but until then, do not lose heart. Step behind that shield of faith. Keep in check not just yourself, but the armament of graces in your life. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the gospel shoes of peace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your word. And we're so grateful for a gospel that isn't man-centric. Every other religion says that in order for me to reach nirvana, in order for me to reach utopia, in order for me to get to the highest level of this religion, it's all about what I do. But I'm grateful to God today for a gospel that says, hey, listen, it's nothing about you. It's all about what's been done for you. Jesus, on behalf of Jesus, I have received you as innocent and guilt-free. And I just want to take time to pray today for anyone here in this room who has not come into that loving message of the gospel. Perhaps maybe all their lives they've been stuck in the performance track. Perhaps all their lives they've been ruled by principalities, depression, of suicide. They've been ruled by the spirit of poverty. Father, I pray for deliverance for them today. In the name of Jesus, that they would come to you and that they could have that moment of justification and say a prayer like this. Say, God in heaven, I'm so sorry for my sin that has separated me from you. But I'm grateful for day that you have counted me righteous on behalf of another. Thank you for the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I accept him and receive him by faith. And I thank you that it doesn't, salvation doesn't stop here. That you would deliver me, that you would regenerate my heart, and that you would deliver me from the evil one, that you would help me renew my mind day in and day out with your word and help me stand firm till the end where you, you get rid of the presence of sin altogether. We thank you, Father. We ask that you just help us take up this shield of faith. Help us live a life that's consistent with the word of God. We don't want to be people who are exposed. We don't want to be people who are vulnerable. We don't want the church to hurt on our behalf. And I pray for us who, who got stinking thinking, if you will, that you would help us just begin to steep in your theology and in your doctrines and in your truths that it might not hit an unregenerated, hardened 
heart of stone, Father, but that it would hit a regenerated, softened heart of flesh. Father, only your spirit can do that. Only by faith can you do that. And so, God, I pray that you would do that in the lives of these people here today. We're grateful that faith also protects our graces. We thank you for your righteousness. We thank you for your truth that allows us to act in faith. We thank you for the gospel. And we thank you for your peace. Defend, attack, advance. Defend, attack, advance. Father, let let that be our battle cry as we go out into this world this week. I pray for those who are waiting for the moment of attack. And I pray that you prepare them to advance the kingdom of God and take down the gates of hell. We love you and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.